Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Lisette Baron Carvajal, a host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Joshua Simon about his fantastic book, The Ideology of the Creole Revolution, Imperialism and Independence in American and Latin American Political Thought, published by Cambridge University Press in 2017. Welcome, Joshua. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you, Lisette. It's a pleasure to be here. So I wonder if you can begin the interview by telling us a little bit about your intellectual trajectory. Unlike other scholars that I've interviewed before, you're a political scientist, more specifically a political theorist. You're not a historian, but you do your work is deeply influenced by history. So tell us how you came to this field and how um, you came to study Latin American political thought in particular. Well, so I had grown up uh, studying Spanish and uh, later studying Spanish literature, uh, and I continued that as an undergraduate, not really as my main line of studies, uh, but sort of more as a sideline and uh, and a hobby. Um, But I majored in political science and studied political theory and worked in particular on the United States, uh, the the founding of the United States, the framing of the U.S. Constitution, and the political ideas underlying that process. Uh, And I had originally applied to PhD programs in political science to pursue that line of study. Um, But right after I sent off my applications to PhD programs, I took off, uh, flew to Chile, uh, and went to, in particular, to a small town on the coast of Chile called Chilemu. Uh, and I stayed there for several months, uh, surfing and reading Latin American history. And what I found there were uh, some really interesting parallels, paralleling events, paralleling ideas that uh, convinced me by the time I got back uh, to the U.S. and started my Ph.D. program that I really wanted to do comparative uh, work uh, and specifically work comparing the United States and Latin America. So the field of political science that I'm in, political theory, can be a very provincial field. We have a canon of authors, great texts, uh, mostly from Europe, a few from the USA, uh, that political political theorists study and write about and teach. And it was uh, a challenge at first convincing uh, some uh, advisors and some colleagues uh, that a project uh, in political theory that focused on, in large part, on Latin American political thought was a viable dissertation project and uh, would be a, a viable uh, a research set of research interests to pursue as a political theorist. But uh, ultimately, uh, I think being in political science uh, was really uh, crucial for this project because. In political science, we really can, are able to combine different types of approaches. So as political theorists, we can do uh, historical and interpretive methods, uh, contextualizing texts, and also uh, just closely reading texts and, and examining their ideas. And But then as political scientists, also we can do uh, sort of comparative methods of, of inference and causal explanation. Uh, and really, it was the, it's the kind of combination of those approaches, these historical interpretive approaches and these comparative inferential approaches that frames my approach in this book 
And I hope that that approach gives me a kind of a unique perspective on the events and the individuals and the ideas that the book is about. Well, so I'm I'm very I'm I'm, I'm so glad that your trip to Chile um, kind of pushed you in this direction, and that you brought together you know American and Latin American political thought because I think this is such an interesting read for for people and to see the connections um, it's so important so. Um, so we're hearing that this is the product of your dissertation, right? Um, mm -hmm. And that you kind of already knew you were going to focus on this period. But here I'm wondering if you also knew um, from the start that you were focusing on this, on the three fig figures that you focus on, which are Alexander Hamilton, Simon Bolivar, and Lucas Alaman. Or if you didn't, how did that happen? How did you choose these three men and why not others, for example? Um, and maybe here are listeners, um, maybe some of them don't know who all of them are. I mm -hmm. certainly know more about Bolivar. I'm Colombian, so I, I grew up with Bolivar being like everywhere. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe you can tell us who, who these men were and like, why did you pick them? Yeah, good. Um, well, I mean, I was primarily interested in and projects of creating federal unions of former colonies. And, um, and I was particularly interested uh, in actually in Central America, uh, which after Central America becomes independent from Mexico, there's an effort to create a federal state uh, comprising the five co contemporary states of Central America. Uh, and the major uh, sort of statesman and intellectual in that project Uh, was a figure named Jose Cecilio de Valle. And he's a figure who I still am very much interested in. And actually, he features in some of my current research. But when I went to my advisors and told them I was going to write a dissertation on Jose Cecilio de Valle, I got a lot of blank stares. Uh, and they uh, advised me that a project focusing on him on a kind of more prominent figure would be more of more interest to more people. And so That's essentially what led me to uh, Simón Bolívar, who, as you say, uh, not only in Colombia, but really throughout, uh, at least throughout Andean South America and throughout much of Latin America and even in the United States is a figure uh, who a lot of people immediately recognize the name, know a little something about the biography and perhaps have, have some idea about what he did and what he thought. So uh, I was working on Simón Bolívar and comparing Simón Bolívar with uh, Alexander Hamilton in the United States came fairly naturally once I was doing that, because both of them really occupied similar positions within the constitutional debates that they were participating in. They were both advocates of uh, centralizing authority uh, rather than Uh, federalizing authority, leaving power to the not leaving power to the constituent states, but rather uh, concentrating that authority in the federal union, and and they were both advocates of presidential authority, and 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 had several other interesting parallels in their thought that I was exploring, and attempting to explain, and uh, and then as I got more and more, particularly into the secondary literature, into debates about. Latin American independence and about the ideas of Latin American independence movements, what I really came to recognize was that a project that was conceived of as, as a comparison between uh, the USA 
represented by Alexander Hamilton, and Latin America, represented by Simón Bolívar, was really misconceived uh, in the sense that it implied that the Latin American experience was sort of monolithic, that all of the Latin American countries had had a, a kind of single path uh, towards independence that could be uh, coherently represented by Simón Bolívar. Uh, and I, I thought, I decided that, that was a, would be a big mistake to frame things that way. And in particular, what I wanted to distinguish was the, was the history in Andean South America from the history in Spanish North America and Central America, uh, and particularly in Mexico. Because my, my impression from the literature was that you had a lot of Mexican scholars writing about independence and describing something very distinct from what the South American scholars were saying about independence. So I wanted to really distinguish those two and make sure I wasn't just comparing the USA to a monolithic Latin America. Uh, and so I went looking for a figure uh, who might be analogous to Hamilton and Bolivar in Mexico and came across this figure of Lucas Alemán, began reading a lot about Mexican history and Mexican intellectual history and you know, he's really an extraordinary figure, um, incredibly prolific author, uh, in very influential politician and statesman. He, Lucas Aleman, was born in Guanajuato, uh, and he was a firsthand uh, witness to the insurgency of, of Miguel Hidalgo. Uh, in fact, he uh, describes in his kind of magisterial history of the independence movement in Mexico, uh, this experience he had while his city, Guanajuato, was being uh, sacked by the insurgents. And he really was a uh, participant, really shaped Mexican politics in the period following independence, a very distinctive thinker, uh, both about the nature of the independence movement, about Mexican constitutionalism, about Mexican foreign affairs. And then he wrote this history. So uh, he had, there was lots of material to work on. I found him fascinating. I ended up spending a year in Mexico uh, working on Aleman. And yeah, and so the three figures uh, really allow me to tell a story, not only about a set of similar ideas, which they do uh, each represent, but a, a story about convergence upon those ideas from really distinctive experiences, distinctive societies, and distinctive intellectual backgrounds, which we can speak a little bit more about. Yeah, I think maybe uh, by the end of the interview, we're going to discuss some of the differences, because it's so interesting that these political thinkers came from very different philosophical traditions, for example, and that the contexts, as you, as you just said, were so different even, you know, within Latin America, there were important differences. But maybe before we do that, we can discuss some of the points of convergence, right? Yes. And one of the of, of those points of convergence is actually uh, that these men were Creole. Um, mm -hmm. So before we move on, I think it would be useful uh, for our listeners uh, if you define uh, what this term means, because at least, well, for Latin Americans and for people familiar with Latin American literature, the way you're using Creole is familiar. But maybe for people more more used to reading um, U.S. American literature, maybe the term Creole can be can mean something different. So maybe tell us what you mean um, by this and how you know all of these men were Creole. That's one of 
like one of your main points and that that is super significant in their um, ideology. Sure. So, yeah, as you say, I use the term Creole uh, and Creole revolution in the sense that the term is used in Spanish, criollo. Uh, and I use it the way that the term is often used, even in English language literature on Latin American history, uh, to describe specifically descendants of European settlers who were born in the Americas. And yes, that does differ somewhat from the way that term gets used in the United States, uh, where it describes populations who uh, of former French colonies in the Americas, uh, uh, including New Orleans, uh, Haiti, uh, and sometimes also uh, other, uh, usually populations of uh, African descendants uh, who have uh, syncretized some African traditions with, with European traditions. So uh, by calling the United States independence movement a Creole revolution, uh, I'm applying a very unfamiliar term to that event. And really, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to place the American independence movement, the U.S. American independence movement, in a different comparative framework uh, in which it sits alongside the independence movements of Spanish America, uh, rather than alongside uh, the mostly European independence movements that it's frequently compared with. And there is one precedent for my use of this term to apply uh, to the United States and to Spanish America, and that's in the work of Benedict Anderson, uh, the fourth chapter of Imagined Communities, uh, is called Creole Pioneers and describes the Creole revolutions, meaning the independence movements of the United States and of Spanish America, as giving rise to a kind of early iteration of this way of thinking that Benedict Anderson calls nationalism. And so really, my one of the engaging with Anderson's work was one of the major inspirations for this project. So I took over as well his term, in, uh, partly in, in homage to that work that was so influential on me. There are some uh, downsides to the use of the term the way I use it, which I think are worth acknowledging. One is that while it might seem that a book on Creole revolution should have a lot to say about uh, Haiti, my book actually does not. Uh, and that's because, you know, Haiti becomes independent under very different circumstances uh, following a, a revolution of former slaves uh, and free people of color rather than the descendants of Europeans born in the Americas. So uh, while there are some very interesting comparisons to be drawn between the uh, between the figures who I study and figures who led the Haitian independence movement, between the ideas that I study and ideas that arose in Haiti during and after that independence movement, I don't think that the the explanatory framework that I develop in this book uh, does a good job of explaining Haiti, uh, and so it lies somewhat uh, outside the the scope uh, that I am able to. Uh, deal with in this book, which is uh, unfortunate if, if that misunderstanding takes place. But um, but I think it could be useful to uh, go back and and think about Haiti, perhaps using some of the categories I developed here. No, and I mean I think it's so fruitful the comparison between you know Latin American political thought and U.S. American political thought that even when you tell us of these shortcomings, the book is. So 
very successful in showing commonalities and convergence. So I guess I'm wondering, you kind of mentioned that you're trying to take distance from a type of literature um, that we can call the age of revolutions approach, right? In which the US American revolution is compared to revolutions that took place in England and France. Um, but you also are taking distance from Uh, more Latin American literature um, that has advanced um, what we what you call the incipient nationalism thesis, which is that you know Latin American revolutions were spurred or caused by nationalist sentiments that were formed in the second half of the 18th century. So why do you think that these approaches are incorrect or lacking, and uh, why why do you think it has taken so long? Or it's not been common to compare these type of revolutions. You you say Benedict Anderson is an exception. So so why have these approaches limited this, and why has this like eluded scholars for for so many years? Yeah, good. Well, yes, as you say, uh, uh, when the independence movement of the United States is put into a comparative framework uh, and set along other other revolutions with which it's held to have some similarities, that comparative framework is usually what is called the age of revolutions. Uh, and that's a term that actually we can find that appears very early. Uh, John Adams used that term to describe a, a period of 50 years that had given rise not only to the independence movement that he participated in in the United States, but also the uh, French Revolution and uh, several uh, sort of somewhat smaller Republican movements in Europe at the time. And so, and Adams, for Adams, Adams explicitly considered whether these events that were beginning to take place, even as he wrote in Spanish America, independence movements beginning to take place in Spanish America, even as he was writing about this age of revolutions, Adams specifically denied that those movements uh, should be considered Uh, part of the age of revolutions. And his reasoning was that these movements were so uh, beholden to superstitious Catholicism uh, that there was no way that they would ever produce uh, Republican ideas uh, analogous to the ones that had animated the U.S., American, and the French revolutions. So the age of revolutions thesis is shaped really from its origins by this very strong anti-Catholic attitude which eventually falls away, but it really gets replaced by other notions that help to sustain this idea that uh, the U.S. American independence movement fits with uh, the French Revolution, particularly perhaps also with the Glorious Revolution in England, and that the Spanish-American independence movements uh, are kind of on the outside. Now, there has been a lot of work challenging that, that idea Uh, attempting to to place the Latin American independence movements in the age of revolutions, particularly a lot of work coming out of Mexico, which focuses on the Spanish liberal constitution of 1812 and its effects in, in Mexico, specifically in Latin America, more generally applying a sort of age of revolutions framework to Latin America. Uh, but I think there are several uh, problems uh, with the framework itself. And that is to say, really, in order to establish this analogy between what takes place mostly in the USA, sometimes also other parts of the Americas, and uh, these events in Europe, you have to uh, de-emphasize 
all of these peculiar features of the Americas that are not present in Europe, uh, namely that these American independence movements are taking place in societies that are colonies, that are being led by the descendants of settlers, uh, and that are having to contend with the fact that they're colonies, these territories that they would like to make into independent states, contain large populations of people who are not the descendants of European settlers, large populations of of indigenous uh, people, uh, indigenous Americans, large populations of African-descended slaves uh, and free people of color and uh, mixed-race people. So what I think gets lost sometimes in uh, scholarship that studies the U.S. in particular, uh, but perhaps more broadly, uh, the the Americas, according to the Age of Revolution, is how those peculiar institutions, those unique features of a colony, which are uh, common to the Americas but not present in Europe, really shape the independence movements and particularly the ideas that emerge from the independence movements in the Americas uh, and make them more similar to one another than to these contemporaneous independence movements. Now, another Latin, the Latin American revolutions, the Spanish American revolutions in particular, bef- before scholars tried to start integrating them into the Age of Revolutions thesis, uh, it was much more common to study the Spanish American independence movements as, uh, according to what I call the incipient nationalism thesis. And this is the idea that what really drives these movements forward is the, the formation within these Spanish-American societies of uh, distinctive identities so that the Creole, uh, that is, European-descended inhabitants of these colonies, uh, really came to think of themselves during the second half of the 18th century as Peruvians or as Colombians or as Venezuelans, rather than thinking of themselves as Spaniards or as Spaniards del otro mar, no, from Spanish, Spanish people born on the other side of the ocean. And that was a impression that I really had a hard time confirming in the text that I was examining, uh, because many of these leaders of these independence movements did not write about themselves that way. They were very concerned to define themselves specifically as Spaniards and to uh, argue that the injustice of the way they were being ruled was unjust because they were Spaniards. Uh, they The rights that were being abrogated were rights that they had as Spaniards. Uh, so they did not seem to have this uh, really distinctive national identity, and it did not seem to be that distinctive identity that was driving their uh, movements forward. Now, one of the interesting features of that incipient nationalism thesis is it sets up an analogy between Spanish America and the independence movements of the 20th century, the decolonization movements, uh, which uh, were are, are and were also held to be nationalist movements, uh, identity-driven uh, movements against empire. And I think that analogy can be useful uh, and can bring out some interesting features of both of those movements. But again, it has its problems. Uh, and in particular, I think uh, it tends to ignore, again, features that are unique to the Americas, which are not shared by those other movements for decolonization. In, in particular, the fact that in the Americas, as I, as I said, the leaders of these independence movements are not indigenous populations in large part struggling against European rule, which has been imposed upon them, 
the leaders of these independence movements are the descendants of European settlers uh, that have to contend both with Europe on one hand and these non-European uh, populations within their colonies. So again, uh, this is a feature that makes the independence movements in the Americas more similar to one another than to the later struggles for decolonization with which particularly the Latin American movements were, were usually concerned. And so just the fact, I think, that you had these two comparative frameworks, which were different uh, and which were applied to the United States on one hand and to uh, Spanish America on the other, really prevented people from, from recognizing or describing or, or attempting to explain uh, the, the many very strong points of similarity between the independence movements of the Americas, and in particular between the ideas that arise in the course of the independence movements of the Americas. That's not to say, of course, that nobody had done that kind of work, but uh, the amount, the, the kind of work that had been done on that was much more limited. Uh, and so that was really the contribution that I hope this book could make. Yeah, and I think it definitely makes it, it's, it's such a, I think it's so useful to compare this cases uh, that had a similar outcome. Um, and I guess maybe this can lead us to to the methodology of your book mm -hmm. and and to uh, the field or the subfield in which you situate your work, which is comparative political theory. So maybe some of our listeners are not familiar with uh, what this field is. And uh, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, this ex this exciting new new feel in, uh, within political theory, and you can explain us a little bit of the method of comparison that you're choosing. You tell us a little bit, uh, I mean, in the introduction, you tell us that you are following John Stuart Mill, Mill's kind of distinction between methods of comparison, so maybe our listeners can hear a little bit about that. Sure. Yes. Well, so as I said earlier in the interview, the field of political theory is uh, really often quite provincial. Uh, has a very set canon uh, of texts that we teach and work on. And that, that canon, as I said, is European and a little bit uh, North American. But uh, there has been a, uh, a movement, an effort, uh, a call for the last, uh, I suppose, about 20 years or so to uh, expand uh, the kinds of texts that political theorists work on to encompass intellectual traditions from outside Europe and North America, especially here, uh, intellectual traditions from East and South Asia, uh, Islamic traditions of political thought uh, uh, have been very prominent in this literature. And it, it go, the, this literature has kind of titled itself, referred to itself as uh, comparative political theory, referencing in particular, I think, comparative literature. Uh, which is the you know field of uh, literary studies where some of these non-European texts uh, appear and are studied. So this is the this is a kind of wave, a uh, movement that I uh, hope to ride and contribute to a little bit with my work, uh, arguing that uh, Latin American uh, political thought uh, should be. Uh, more extensively studied by political theorists for a number of reasons, for its internal attractions, for the very uh, interesting uh, intellectuals and very interesting ideas that uh, can be studied uh, within Latin America, uh, and also for its potential as a comparative case. Uh, there's a number of ways in which I think 
studying Latin America alongside more familiar traditions, uh, more familiar to political theorists, that is to say, uh, can help us learn a lot about both. And in this way, for me, I've tried to really argue in this book uh, and in a few other pieces that comparative political theory should take some notes, some methodological inspiration from the field of comparative social science, comparative politics, comparative historical sociology, and really use comparisons uh, intentionally in order to make causal arguments. So it's very common in political theory to describe uh, a set of ideas that you find within a given text, and then to try to provide an explanation as to why those ideas appear there. And that's implicitly often, uh, sometimes explicitly, but usually implicitly a causal argument about how a particular context shaped the intellectual uh, production that that goes on in that context. Uh, And comparison really allows us to make causal arguments of that kind somewhat more systematically. Uh, so that we can think about different possible explanations for the ideas that we study, and we can use comparisons to make arguments on behalf of one or another explanation. So what I've tried to do in this book, and what these three figures who I study in the book allow me to do, is to do that kind of systematic comparison. So the argument of this book is that Creoles, the Creole leadership of the American independence movements, lends those uh, the ideas that arose in the course of those independence movements of distinctive character, uh, that the problems that Creoles had to deal with uh, as they uh, struggled to uh, uh, become free from European imperialism and then to establish stable states after winning their independence cause a lot of really notable similarities in the ideas that we see across these independence. And to make that argument systematically, what I wanted to do was to show that that context, this context of a Creole revolution, really was doing work in shaping the ideas. And that the similarities that we note across these independence movements can't be explained by some other factors that we might want to suggest explain these similarities. In particular, I wanted to suggest that uh, we can't explain all the similarities we see just by reference to the intellectual traditions that were influential in these independence movements. Because while they did share intellectual influences, what I really do with these three figures is show that despite a very distinct set of intellectual influences, we see them each converging upon the same set of ideas. So Alexander Hamilton was really very strongly influenced, and the influence is clear within his work, of uh, by the thinkers of the Scottish Enlightenment. Uh, by economists like Adam Smith, uh, but more uh, more emphatically, much more uh, prominently by the philosopher David Hume. And we can see the Scottish Enlightenment's uh, view of human nature, uh, of how human beings interact, of how history can be used in explanations and the development of, of arguments. These are all very prominent within Alexander Hamilton's work, uh, even apart from the the direct and explicit references he makes to David Hume. Meanwhile, Simon Bolivar, really the predominant influence within his work is a different intellectual tradition within Europe, and that's the tradition of classical republicanism. So figures like Machiavelli, uh, Montesquieu, Rousseau, 
Bolivar, these are the figures who we see uh, Bolivar reference directly, uh, and they're the figures whose sort of fingerprints we can see in his work. Simon Bolivar conceived of uh, politics as a, a problem of cultivating virtue of, of citizens uh, so that they would be able to maintain their freedom, their collective freedom of their uh, states that they lived in uh, against both uh, external threats and internal disorder. And a lot of his political thought is framed by reference to that problem, that problem of maintaining virtue and thus maintaining freedom. Uh, and that's a different uh, set of ideas, uh, a different set of uh, concepts, languages, uh, and arguments that we see very prominently in his work from Alexander Hamilton. And finally, Lucas Aleman uh, comes from yet a third uh, intellectual, European intellectual tradition. Uh, and this is the, the uh, conservative reaction to the French Revolution uh, articulated above all by the Irish philosopher Edmund Burke. So Lucas Aleman's work is full of references, direct references to Edmund Burke, and uh, bears a very clear evidence of the influence of Burke's work on his thought. So Lucas Aleman is very skeptical of revolution. Uh, he's very uh, concerned with the disruption that revolution can bring about. Uh, he's very concerned to see that elements of the Spanish uh, imperial tradition uh, both the kind of formal institutional elements and more informal I ideological elements get preserved in independent Mexico. And uh, that, again, that influence is very strong. And so what I try to do with these three figures is show that despite these distinctive intellectual influences, which are visible in their ideas, despite those three different intellectual traditions, we see them each converging on a shared set of ideas. Uh, and those are the, the, the ideas that I argue comprise the ideology of Creole revolution. And what that allows me to do is argue that it's not the intellectual tradition, but rather the context, the institutional context in which they were operating that explains that convergence, that explains these similarities. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you just, Raise the argument of your book so clearly. But I want to kind of um, ask you further about it because one of your, you know, main arguments is that, as you said, even if Creoles embrace different um, or came from different intellectual traditions, they nonetheless converge in anti-imperialist and imperialist positions at the same time. So this is something you call anti-imperial imperialism. And it sounds contradictory, right? And I think your point is that it was, or that it is contradictory. So, uh, tell us what this, what anti-imperial imperialism is, and maybe you can further elaborate on um, the three problems in which Creoles converged. Yes. Yeah, so the character of the ideology of Creole revolution, I argue, is anti-imperial imperialism, and as you say, it's contradictory. Uh, I mean ideas that are both imperial and anti-imperial at the same time. And I argue that the presence of those ideas can be explained uh, by the fact that these Creoles, the leaders of these independence movements, were sort of institutionally imperial and anti-imperial at the same time. They were situated uh, in such a way as to really feel some negative effects from European imperial rule. Uh, they were denied equal representation in the imperial 
parliaments and councils that made laws and regulations that affected their lives. Uh, they were uh, denied social recognition as equals of the uh, European, uh, whether British or Spanish, administrators who came and, and administered their colonies. They were denied some posts within their colonies, uh, and they very strongly represented these limitations. They very strongly resented these limitations that were imposed upon them as a consequence of the fact that they had been born in the Americas. But at the same time, even as they were institutionally situated in such a way as to feel the ill effects of European imperial rule, they were also institutionally situated in order to derive advantages from European imperial rule. They were a colonial elite. They uh, had access to uh, economic opportunities, to political power, to social uh, uh, regard that was denied to the non-European inhabitants of their colonies. Uh, uh, particularly, they benefited from the exploitation of enslaved African labor. They benefited from the exploitation of uh, indigenous labor that was organized in, in distinctive ways over the course of the uh, imperial period. Uh, and uh, they excluded almost entirely uh, African and indigenous descended peoples from participation in the political apparatus that uh, they dominated uh, within these colonies. Uh, so Creoles were situated in what I call a contradictory institutional position. They were neither wholly colonizers nor wholly colonized. They were in some senses both colonizer and colonized. And I argue that from that experience, from the experience of this contradictory institutional position, Creoles had a set of uh, problems to deal with as they became independent. They had a problem in terms of how they could define and defend the independence movements that they were undertaking. What kinds of arguments could they make on behalf of the justice of the cause that they were pursuing, this cause of independence? They had a problem that arose really during the independence movements, but then really came to a head after the independence movements. And how could we design institutions for these societies that will stabilize them after this experience of, of warfare uh, and that will preserve, after we become independent, uh, this advantageous position that as Creoles they occupied vis-a-vis -vis the non-European inhabitants of their colonies? And then they had a problem of how should we Creole revolutionaries relate to other Creole revolutionaries in the hemisphere and relate to Europeans. How, what kinds of foreign policy should we adopt in order to preserve the gains uh, that we have made uh, in the course of these independence movements? So those are the three moments uh, that I talk about in the book and that I argue that we can see anti-imperial imperialism arise in three different forms as these movements progress. So the first form of anti-imperial imperialism appears in these arguments that we see made on behalf of independence in the United States and in the uh, Spanish-American uh, colonies. And what's interesting there is, as I've already uh, suggested a little bit, uh, the kinds of arguments that are being made are precisely highlighting uh, the rights that these Creoles bore as Europeans. These are rights that their forefathers carried with them across the Atlantic and uh, that they inherited from their European uh, predecessors. They're also rights that their European predecessors won in the course of conquering the New World. So it's precisely because their predecessors had conquered the New World, 
had subjected these indigenous populations and had purchased these African populations, uh, that they had these rights. And it was those rights uh, that the European empires were uh, curtailing, were attempting to abrogate. Uh, and it was on the basis of those attempted curtailments and abrogations that these Creoles claimed that the cause that they were fighting for, independence, was just. So it was an independence movement on behalf of rights that they bore as Europeans. So it was anti-imperial in the sense that it was an attempt to preserve rights against imperial incursion, but it was simultaneously imperial in the sense that the rights that they were attempting to defend had derived from empire, that they were rights that they had precisely because they were involved in this imperial project. So that's one sense in which anti-imperial imperialism appears in these independent uh, then we move to constitutionalism and how Creoles designed institutions to govern their societies uh, and to stabilize their societies and to preserve the advantages that they had enjoyed. Uh, and again, we see some contradictory impulses arise here. So Creoles immediately after becoming independent, uh, or even really in the course of these independence movements, uh, begin to uh, contend with the fact, well, what if some territory within the Americas uh, does not want to become independent. What about loyalist territories within the Americas? What should be our uh, orientation to those territories? Uh, should we allow them to persist, to remain attached to uh, the European empires? Or uh, could we justifiably march on those territories, liberate them by force, and incorporate them into the new states that are being formed here. Uh, and what I find across all of these independence movements is that latter argument being made, that uh, we are within our rights to, and Simon Bolivar makes this argument very strongly in relation to, to some highland territories of Colombia, Pasto, which was a, uh, a holdout loyalist indigenous community, uh, and then later in reference to Peru, uh, an entirely distinct administrative unit of the Spanish Empire, we are within our rights to conquer those territories and incorporate them into the federal states that we are forming, because if we don't, uh, they will constitute a, a lasting threat to our independence. So again, you see that combination of imperial and anti-imperial. Yes, we are fighting for independence, and in order to succeed in our fight for independence against empire, we need to engage in some activities that themselves are imperial, namely the forcible conquest and forcible annexation of territories. So that's a yet another sense in which this anti-imperial imperialism features in uh, Creole political thought. And then finally, uh, in Creole foreign policies and in the, the ways that they related to one another, uh, Creoles all thought that the expansion of territory and the colonization even internally, of territories that were not densely populated by Creoles yet, uh, would be an important way of sustaining their independence movements. And this leads to some actually some interesting conflicts between the Creole revolutions. So in the territory uh, presently known as Texas, once known as Guayla y Texas, uh, which was an administrative unit of the Spanish Empire, later a province of the Federal Republic of Mexico, both Mexico and the United States engaged in very concerted efforts to colonize that land, which was very sparsely populated uh, and mostly populated by non-European descended populations, by indigenous people. Both Mexico and the United States engaged in this kind of competitive project of colonization, 
throughout the uh, 1810s, 20s, and 30s. And that competitive project of, of colonization, because Mexico and the United States are engaged in parallel projects to try to colonize and secure their claim to this territory, they end up involved in a conflict, uh, the Mexican-American War, uh, that results in the occupation of Mexico City by the U.S. Army in uh, the cession of almost half of Mexico's territory to the United States. And so, uh, again, you see this uh, anti-imperial imperialism taking place, uh, territorial conquest, uh, annexation of new territories, internal colonization of sparsely populated territories are all policies pursued with an eye to fortifying the independence of these new states. And that anti-imperial imperialism in this last instance really does a lot to shape the longer term trajectory of U.S. Latin American relations, which is which is with us uh, today. Yeah, I mean, thank you for being very specific about all of those, you know, those three different problems and the ways in which Creole ideology converged. Um, and here I want to flag to our readers that you really parse out your argument in chapter two, and then you kind of follow with three chapters that work as case studies of Alexander Hamilton, Simon Bolivar, and Lucas Alemán. Um, since you've given us so many details already about, you know, how Creole's ideology converged, uh, I want to ask you about the puzzle that emerges. Um, and this is something that you address in chapter uh, six, because you say that the puzzle that emerges is that So if the U.S. American Revolution and Latin American revolutions were so similar, why did they, you know, the histories of these regions were so different afterwards? Uh, and this is something that you kind of reflect on in chapter six, because this is something that scholars have asked for a long time. So why is the fate, why was the fate of Latin America so different than, you know, what happened for the U.S.? Why, why, why do you think that there were these different trajectories? Yeah, uh, well, it's a great question. And one of the ones uh, that I really hope this book can uh, contribute to some debates that are taking place. I mean, yes, if we think about uh, the Americas today, and the disparities of wealth uh, that, that exist across the Americas, the disparities of uh, political power uh, that, that exist across the nations of the Americas, the different experiences of political stability, you know, I'm comparing the United States, which has had a constitution in effect now for more than Uh, 200 years to the Latin American nations, which have more constitutional reforms, have had most, without exception, have had multiple constitutions in their history to, from the U.S., where uh, there's never been a kind of violent transition of executive authority to many of the Latin American nations where, where coups that change executive authorities are, if not commonplace, then uh, not rare experiences in their history. Uh, uh, so how do we explain all of these differences? Uh, and explaining those differences is actually, as you, as you suggest, uh, a kind of long-standing problem for social scientists. Uh, and some of the going explanations, I mean, by my account, most of the going explanations 
try to explain those differences that we can observe today by reference to very deep set and very uh, deep historical differences. So there are geographic explanations that focus on the nature of the river networks in the two continents of North uh, uh, and South America. Geographic explanations that focus on the climate across the two continents of the Americas, uh, that focus on the disease environments uh, in the two continents of the Americas, and try to explain these, these observable differences that we see today by reference to these uh, geographic and climatic features. There are uh, racial explanations uh, that argue that the different trajectories that the United States and Latin America follow after independence are consequences of the the greater uh, incidence of miscegenation and the larger population of mixed race po uh, people that exists in Latin America as compared with the United States. Uh, the greater contribution of uh, indigenous racial stock to the Latin American population. So uh, racialized arguments for the difference and really racist arguments uh, to explain the difference. And then there are institutional explanations, which uh, rather than focusing on the kind of rocks or the climate, rather than focusing on the races of the populations involved, suggest that uh, the differences that we can observe between Latin America and the United States are attributable to the different institutions that have prevailed in those two uh, regions. Uh, but when they talk about institutions, they're often talking about the institutions that are established at the time of colonization. So it's the difference between the nature of Spanish imperial rule and British imperial rule, between the oppressive, extractive Spanish imperial system as opposed to the more uh, participatory and liberal British imperial experience. So uh, you can see again how some kind of cultural elements creep back into the explanation being made even now under an institutional guise. And what I really wanted to argue, uh, what I hope this book can help uh, suggest, is that we don't need to go so far back. We don't need to go back to the formation of the geology of these continents or the explanations of distinctive climate or the racial composition of the populations or even the institutional, the nature of the institutions established during uh, imperial rule in order to explain differences. Because despite all of those differences, and many of which, I uh, side note, uh, many of which uh, occur with greater variation inside the polities of the United States and Latin America rather than between the two of them. Despite those differences, we have these independence experiences that have such strong similarities. And we have attempts made during the independence movements to establish institutions that were very strongly similar to one another. And in particular, I emphasize here, attempts were made during these independence movements to establish federal unions of former colonies. So large, even continentally sized political organizations that took in smaller units. And I try to suggest that those federal uh, unions, this project of establishing federal unions, which was successful in the United States, uh, the federal union established at Philadelphia in 1787 has persisted to this day. So that those projects, uh, several several analogous projects undertaken in Latin America were unsuccessful. Uh, so Mexico began life as a much larger federal union uh, than it is today. Central America, as I mentioned early on, attempted to form a federal union. Uh, 
uh, and that federal union broke apart and left the five present-day states of Central America. Colombia, uh, the polity referred to as Colombia, once took in not just the present-day country of Colombia, but of course also Panama, Venezuela, and Ecuador. Uh, that's a unit that the historians refer to as Gran Colombia. That was Simon Bolivar's project. And uh, even uh, the United Provinces of the Rio de la Plata was the original form in which uh, the countries of Argentina, Uruguay, uh, Paraguay, and Bolivia became independent. So all these attempts to form federal unions uh, were parallel across the Americas. And I tried to explain why those attempts were made. But then we see the only one of them that succeeded was the United States. And I try to argue that the success of that federal union in the United States had really important effects for subsequent developments, both economic and political development. The federal union offered major advantages for industrialization, uh, for early industrialization and for trade to the United States, which the nations of Latin America did not enjoy. And just the experience of political stability in a larger unit was very advantageous to the United States uh, in terms of uh, uh, avoiding regular constitutional turnover and irregular transitions of power, uh, which many Spanish-American nations experienced with great frequency in the decades following their independence movement. So if we want to explain these distinctive uh, features of these countries that we can see today, we can go to a much more proximate event to explain them and look at the success or failure of these projects to form federal unions after independence. Now, of course, that cues up another question, which is, well, why did the United States succeed in forming this federal union while Latin America, while the nations of of Spanish America did not? Uh, What explains that difference? And what I really try to emphasize is that uh, that is a difference that can be explained by uh, contingency. Uh, There are not systematic factors that explain this departure. The United States on several occasions uh, in the first decades and really the first century of its independence came very close to following the same path into dissolution of the federal union that Latin America, that the nations of Spanish America did. Not just the Civil War, where different parts of the United States went to war against one another and the federal union explicitly collapsed for a period, but even prior to that, uh, on several occasions, secessionist movements arose, which could have broken apart the United States, but for really very small and contingent events that prevented that trajectory from being followed. So what I want to say is that really a small difference uh, that occurs in, uh, at the time of the independence movements and in the early aftermath explains the success of the federal union in the United States and the failure of the federal unionist projects in Latin America. And then that difference uh, really explains some of the very large differences that we observe today, some of those disparities in wealth and power, some of those differences in political stability that characterize uh, uh, the Americas today. So before I ask you about what you're currently working on, which is the way we usually end our interviews, so how do you think uh, this argument that you're advancing in the book and the reflection you just mentioned us about what caused the different trajectories. How do you think this impact are present or why is it important for our listeners to understand this Creole ideology um, and to understand convergence and to see convergence? Why is it important for the present? Yeah. Well, I think one 
big lesson that is important for the present is just to understand that the differences that we observe, the disparities of wealth and power, uh, the differences in, in political stability are not inevitable or in some sense natural. It is not necessary that the United States is different uh, from the other countries of the Americas. That is a uh, difference that can be explained and explained by reference to really small contingencies in their history. So things could be otherwise than they are. Uh, it wouldn't take very much to have made the United States follow a trajectory much more like the, the nations of Spanish America than the one that it is in fact followed. Uh, and I think that goes a long way to uh, diminishing the force of arguments that attempt to justify those disparities of wealth those disparities of power that attempt to justify, so, for example, interventions that the United States has undertaken in Latin America by reference to the differences. So if those differences are natural, if the United States is in possession of a superior political culture or a superior political understanding or is populated by a superior race of people, uh, these are how those interventions have been justified. And if I can show that those differences are not explainable by reference to those factors, but by reference to very different, much more contingent historical factors, I think that goes a long way towards diminishing the force of those arguments that are made on behalf of, of disparities of wealth and power in the Americas. It may also go some way toward uh, suggesting how those disparities might be mitigated, how Latin Americans could organize themselves to advance economic development uh, and to claim uh, more power in global politics. So projects to, form, to integrate Latin America economically and politically did not stop with the independence movement. They have persisted and they have had some fairly prominent advocates in recent times. The uh, former president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez Frias, explicitly described the pro political program that he pursued is Bolivarian in reference to Simon Bolivar. Uh, and a major component of that program was an effort to integrate uh, the nations of uh, Latin America politically and economically. Uh, and I think this argument could give us some reasons to think that that uh, project uh, might help, might help alleviate some of these differences of wealth and, and power. On the other hand, it might give us some reasons to doubt that that is a program that should be pursued. Uh, because as I show, these projects to form federal unions uh, were really motivated by, F by Creole's efforts to uh, preserve the advantages that they enjoyed, these differential economic and political and social uh, advantages that they enjoyed vis-a-vis uh, -vis non-European populations in the Americas. So they had serious downsides. And those downsides have to be taken into consideration when we consider reviving projects, Bolivarian projects. We should consider the downsides that might accompany uh, attempts to pursue those to pursue those projects. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I think particularly in this moment in which so many things are happening in Latin America, we're seeing a lot of social movements. We are talking about this two days before. Um, November 21st, which would be a huge um, national protest in Colombia. Uh, we don't know what will happen, if it will be similar to Chile. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how, how things go. But I think this book and what you just said is so interesting and important to understand 
our current moment and to also uh, build bridges with, with, with what is happening in the U.S. Because even if there is divergence, uh, there's also a lot of commonalities still, I think. Um, so before I let you go, I've taken so much of your time, but before just briefly tell us what you're working on, um, right now, what are, what, what are your projects? Well, um, I've got a few projects going on, but the main thing I'm doing, uh, I'm working on another book, which picks up a thread that comes out of this book that we've been discussing and really pursues it across, uh, the later part of the 19th century. Uh, and that's a thread of how the Americas should relate to each other. What sorts of foreign policies should they adopt in relation to one another? And this second book is about, is going to be about how, about a really big transition that takes place in the Americas. At the, at, during these independence movements and in their immediate aftermath, there's really strong expressions, both in the United States and in many Spanish American countries, strong expressions of inter-American solidarity a sense amongst Americans that they were engaged in a common project uh, of resisting European imperialism and uh, efforts to coordinate that resistance, uh, efforts to coordinate that struggle. Uh, there is also a sense amongst Americans that we in the Americas have an opportunity to pursue a form of international politics that Europeans have failed to pursue. Namely, Europeans have been fighting each other the nations, the states of Europe have been fighting each other for centuries, and that fighting has really uh, uh, frustrated their uh, economic development, their artistic and scientific advances. Uh, and in the Americas, we have an opportunity to do something differently, uh, to try to pursue an international politics that is not characterized by constant warfare and the threat of warfare, uh, that would instead be characterized by institutionalized interrelations. Uh, so we should set up diplomatic congresses that meet regularly or even stay in session that are capable of regulating the ways that the Americas relate to each other. And this is an idea that emerges from the independence movements and really flowers in their aftermath. But then over the course of the 19th century, really changes very dramatically. As the United States becomes a, uh, you know, first a kind of continental power, later a hemispheric hegemon, uh, and uh, the nations of Spanish America become sort of subject to that hegemony. So, but what's fascinating, I find, is that uh, even as that transition takes place in the relative power of the uh, nations of the Americas, thinkers, intellectuals who are writing about this problem, intellectuals in the United States who are defending the United States' as advancing hegemony within the hemisphere, and intellectuals within Latin America who are keen to resist the United States' expanding hegemony within the hemisphere, still refer back constantly to these ideas of inter-American solidarity and to ideas about a different model of international politics. So the United States, as it is intervening in Central America, in the Caribbean, uh, even in, in a few instances in South America, uh, defends those interventions as efforts to preserve this peaceful politics. Uh, so we need to land soldiers in order to avoid warfare. Uh, again, there's a kind of clear contradiction uh, in some of these thinking. And Spanish Americans, uh, in criticizing US, U.S. incursions, are referring back to the idea of international politics that was developed during the independence movement. 
calling upon the United States to live up to commitments that it had made earlier. And then kind of at some point giving up on the United States, being able to pursue that path and then calling for the nations of Latin America to unite, to institutionalize their inter interrelations in order to resist the United States' incursions. Uh, so what I'm trying to do in this book is really explain that divergence. And uh, several factors come up. Uh, the rise of scientific racism in the United States explains a lot of uh, why uh, U.S. Americans go from thinking of Spanish Americans as potential allies in a single struggle against European rule to the subjects of this kind of expanding place of Anglo-Saxons in the world. Uh, and then we see some very interesting critiques of this highly rationalized view of international politics emerge from Spanish America. And I've been writing recently about the Cuban intellectual uh, Jose Martí, who advances a particularly sophisticated critique, of course, of racism, uh, both as it functioned in, within the Cuban independence movement, but then also as it had become much, much more prominent in inter-American relations. So I'm really pursuing those sets of ideas as they change in the Americas over the course of the 19th century and then culminate in the formation of international institutions uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. And what I'm trying to show is that, you know, within Latin America, we find a really useful, critical tradition of thinking about international politics, which has exerted more influence than is commonly given credit for, but which uh, should probably give, be given more attention even now to the extent that we hope to uh, build international institutions that can preserve peace, uh, but also sustain more widespread uh, prosperity and uh, really allow people to uh, participate democratically in governing themselves. Well, that all sounds super interesting, and I'm sure um, listeners uh, can't wait to kind of read some of that newer work. And for those that, you know, want to get into more of the details of this particular book, you know, they can go to, to, to the book and read it and learn so much in the process. So thank you, Joshua, for joining us today. This was an excellent conversation. Oh, thank you so much, Lizette. I really enjoyed it. <laughs>